1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking
1: requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast with me, that's Krista John Higgs is one of my favourite writers and regular listeners will remember our conversation last year about the psychedelic legacy of William Blake. Now John's back with a new cultural history, this time telling the parallel stories of the Beatles and James Bond. In Love and Let Die, he investigates how and why Britain produced not one but two global phenomena that are still profoundly loved and influential today. Why did the Beatles really split up? Is Daniel Craig's James Bond, quote-unquote, super-woke? And how did these twin icons of British culture change the national psyche forever? John answered all these questions and more. Heads up, this episode discusses adult themes including sex and violence in real life, not only in works of fiction, and is not one to listen to with kids. Here's our conversation. John Higgs, welcome back to the How To Academy podcast. Uh, It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. You've written quite a lot about the counterculture of the 60s and 70s in books about Timothy Leary and Robert Anton Wilson, among others. But this time you're tackling some of the most mainstream and popular works of that era, telling the parallel stories of The Beatles and James Bond and to put it mildly these are extremely well documented parts of our culture already so why did you want to write this book
2: i think because they are so domestic so they are such a part of our lives they we, they feel so familiar we don't really look at them that much or that deeply we just take them for granted they're always there you know they don't they don't seem um strange in any any particular way until you start looking at them and then you realize just how unbelievable they are really how uh the idea that say you know you could make a film character who's going to go on for 25 sequels and over 60 years and every film would make money and every film would be a success just doesn't work like that the films don't happen in that way if they did all the film producers would be churning them out like that and in a similar way, the, the idea that a band could do what the Beatles did, you know, no one, no one believes that anymore. No one expects if they form a group with their mates that they would impact on culture to the extent that the, the Beatles did and be discussed decades and decades later. They are monsters, really. They're monsters in the cultural landscape. They're not normal. And it just felt helpful if you put them together and look at them together, you might sort of learn things about them rather than looking at the Beatles with versus the Kinks or The Who or other sixties bands or, you know, action cinema in general. They they they're just they're odd things and it's worth flagging that up, I think.
1: And Love Me Do, the first Beatles album, and the film version of Doctor No both came out on the same day. And to your mind, it's not an exaggeration to say this
2: was a major turning point in the history
1: of British culture.
2: I think but I think so. I think it's it was particularly significant because of the time that it was, which was after the Suez uh, crisis in, in the 1950s. Um, the Suez crisis is generally regarded at the point where Britain had to admit to itself that it was no longer a global superpower, that it could not throw its weight around on the global stage, that the days of empire over. And that was the the story of Britain for the, at least a couple of centuries earlier, the, the notion that, you know, Britannia ruled the waves and the sun never sets on the British empire. And that was the story of who we were. And then that, that ended and that ended and it just left the question, well, who are we now? You know, there was this sort of pause, there was this sort of gap. So for these two very opposing and different visions of what it is to be modern, to be British and modern, to sort of suddenly appear at the same time, um, did feel significant. And I do think they both had a, probably because of their global success, just their this incredible global success. I think they have shaped how people see us and how we see us as well.
1: Why does the cultural imagination matter? Like, wh- why write a book about the British psyche? that is told through the perspective of the Beatles story and the Bond story rather than just more conventional history.
2: Yeah. Most, most uh, histories tell the story of power, right? That's what they do, whether that's military power, symbolic power, you know, um, economic power, you know, like the British East India company or, or something like that. Our histories are accounts of the shifts and the changes of, of real power. And that's kind of hard to, connect with because most people don't have power and a bit sort of suspicious of it the idea that the imagination that culture has you know an equal impact in those terms it looks a bit ludicrous people are very dismissive of it but it's really isn't the case i think i think um power and imagination they're a bit like fire and water Like they're opposite they're very different they impact on things in a very different way But the the end result, you know, can be devastation. You know, you can be destroyed as much by a tsunami as you can by a forest fire. They're very sort of powerful things. And culture is important and ideas are important because, you know, ideas shape attitudes and attitudes shape actions and actions shape history. So deep down, if you do want to understand who we are and where we've come from, the ideas that that we connect with and, and that play on us and that we sort of um, are drawn to are absolutely part of that story and and probably an underexplored part of it, I think. Keeping with the theme
1: of um, paired opposites, the thesis of the book more broadly is that the Beatles and Bond represent the two opposing drives of the human psyche, at least according to Freud, which is to say love for the Beatles and death for James Bond.
2: Can you elaborate a bit on that? It's a, it's a poetic conceit, obviously, but it's such an appealing one, such a, uh, an obvious one. The, you're right. Freudians do talk of Eros and Thanatos as the love drive and the death drive as, as the two sort of opposing and, and um, uh, forces that we struggle with in, in our psyches. And, um, people do immediately think of love when they talk about the Beatles and, Bond is obviously death. He has a license to kill. His films are like a view to a kill, die another day, no time to die. You know, they fit so well into those categories. But I kind of think the notion that that, that Thanatos, the death drive, should um, be explored in action cinema fits really well because we have this drive. We are sort of part of us does want to like see a car crash and see something violent, stuff like that. And this can have huge social and horrible implications, but action cinema is a is a sort of a safe way to sort of acknowledge this part of us, acknowledge that we are drawn to these sort of things in a way that doesn 't damage others uh, and in a similar way, eros love uh, the opening yourself up to something larger to sort of letting go of your individualism and becoming more. That fits the world of music beautifully. That's, you know, because that's what happens when we listen to music. We just, we just give ourselves to it and we, we open ourselves up to it. So for Eros and Thanatos to appear in pop music and uh, action cinema does make a weird kind of sense to me.
1: The other paradigm here at work, of course, is that the Beatles are working class, generally liberal, progressive sort of hippies, and Bond represents the imperial establishment and celebrates that unashamedly. So can you speak a little yeah. bit about that
2: dichotomy? Yeah, I think so. I think as I said, both when they appeared were seen as modern. Like this was this they were both very modern, but they were modern in, in very different ways. For Bond, it was about, you know, fancy cars and great clothes and you know flying to say place like Jamaica were incredibly exotic when the book started to come out you know there was no package holidays in those days and for him to go to all these beautiful parts of the world was just uh, it was it was it was so attractive and, and so so appealing to people, but Bond's modernity was that things would get better. We'd have better gadgets, we'd have better toys, but the attitude would stay the same. The attitudes to women, to empire, they weren't to be changed. The Beatles, again, absolutely the opposite. They were all about different attitudes. They were all about different ideas to sexuality, to drugs, to Eastern religions, to all, all the things that we think of when we associate with them. But in terms of um, Britain, they were quite quite happy to sort of feel nostalgic and, you know, draw on sort of the faux-Victoriana of Sergeant Peppers and songs about, like, their childhood, Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields Forever. They were about, we need to be modern. It needs new attitudes, new ideas, where for Bond, it was like to be modern, keep things exactly the same. We'll just have new toys and new new gadgets and and things like that. So again, you can't help when you just put the two together. There's a a real dialogue just starts up between them. And and it really helps you see them in, in a new way, get a new perspective on them, just putting them alongside each other, I think.
1: The Beatles and Ian Fleming all had very tough and difficult childhoods. Uh, even though they were from opposite ends of the class system. And this leaves its mark in their adult work. Can you speak a little to that?
2: Yeah, it is. It was quite a shock to me when I realised the extent to which almost every single character I was writing about was not brought up in a nuclear family, uh, was either had, had a parent who died or a parent who left them, uh, or they were given away or they were sent to boarding school or they were raised by nannies. It was only really George Harrison and George Martin who would come up in a normal uh, uh, nuclear family.
1: Remind listeners uh, who George Martin is.
2: Oh, George Martin—he's the Beatles producer. He's—he's he's basically the fifth Beatle. You know, he's—we um, uh, wouldn't have what we think of the Beatles without without him. He was uh, the the guy down in London who. Um, they were very, very lucky to find. But everyone, people like Yoko Ono, uh, Linda Linda McCartney, the early Beatles like Stu Sutcliffe and Pete Best, their managers, Brian Epstein, Alan Klein, all their upbringings were um, different in some way. And it does make a real uh, impact on on a child, especially if they've experienced death, which is, which we think of as quite a, an adult way of viewing the world to sort of know that to so, to grow up as a child who loses a parent you have kind of a, uh, an adult and a childish view of the world at the same time and it does it does mark you out as different in in some ways and there has been a lot of talk about you know eminent orphans this this um, this phenomena where the, uh, the, the children who've lost a parent are overly represented in uh, high achieving individuals but at the same time. Prisons are full of people who weren't raised by both their parents. It can, it can really, it can really go either way, and it it, cause it it figures so much in the story of people like John Lennon, and Ian, Ian Fleming as well. I think that their upbringing that you can't really avoid that subject. Yeah, I would I didn't expect that to be such a big theme when I started the book, but it I, it, it really, it really was.
1: And you point out at one point in the book that, in fact, the James Bond stories are full of orphan characters as well.
2: Very much so, yeah. Very very much so. But, um, you know, part of this was, it it was after the war, so it was a lot more normal at that point. So they've lost a parent or a parent has gone away and not sort of come back. But it it does jump out of you as, as a very significant theme, I think. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV.
1: Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II, and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle, and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House, and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. It might surprise listeners who are only familiar with Bond from the MGM films that in Fleming's books, he is a vicious, cruel, and psychologically damaged man in ways that, to your mind, reflect the real values and real personality of Ian Fleming, with the addition that Bond is extremely competent and doesn't suffer for his actions. Can you speak a little bit about Mm -hmm. that?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's often commented on the extent to which Bond was... Ian Fleming's fantasy version of himself uh, in that, you know, Ian Fleming was getting to middle age, his health was starting to go. Uh, so all things like that could be fixed for this fantasy version of himself. Uh, whereas Ian Fleming was pretty much behind a desk for most of the, the war, um, sending people off to fight, never in danger himself. His fantasy version was far brave and was out sort of fighting. But uh, the, the amount of his own... Of Ian Fleming's attitudes and opinions that so he just pours into the character of James Bond really give you a real insight into him. He's just he's a mouthpiece for him in in many ways. On subjects like drinking coffee versus drinking tea, little little things like this. You just get you just get a real sense that um Fleming has invented his idealized self. And to modernize, there's a lot in there that you just wince. You, you know, there's no two ways about it. Um a lot in there is if it was to come out now, there'd be an uproar. You know, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be accepted in twenty twenty two. A lot of the attitude he, he certainly displays, uh, but it is a very honest picture of himself. And I think that's partly, you know, many, most authors, in fact, would love to create a character that sort of steps off the page and becomes real to people. Becomes uh, has a life outside the books and survives for decades and decades and decades on. That uh, becomes a global icon. You know. Authors love to do this, but they can't. It's too hard. Somehow Fleming, by pouring enough of himself into this character, made him three dimensional enough, real enough, interesting enough, you know, to warts and all step out of the books and in, into you know the, the, the global culture.
1: And complaints about Bond being a reactionary and a bigot and an awful man are not actually new. He's always been behind the curve, even in the sixties. Right? That's part of the formula for his success.
2: Yeah, I think I think so. I think that's true. I think um, it's certainly Bond is never, you know, ideologically. You, you couldn't ideologically defend Bond in any way, shape, or form. He's always behind the curve. But it is important to recognise the extent to which the character has changed over the the last 60 years, particularly after Ian Fleming died, the character sort of very quickly began to move away from how Ian Fleming saw him to try and track what it was that men wanted to be. sort of this idealized version of masculinity and the character just shifts and moves over the decades to sort of follow what that is. So, as I say, though, it's not um, no one's going to you know, defend it on ideological reasons. It does mark a real shift and a shift in the right direction in terms of how men think of themselves and how men think they should act in the world to women and all these, and all these sort of things. So you get now to the extent where when the last Bond film came out, No Time to Die, for the Daily Mail, the word woke you know, wasn't enough. And they had to coin the phrase super woke to describe James Bond at this point, which um, is kind of funny when you, you look at the long arc of, of James Bond that people react to him in that sort of way at this sort of at this sort of time. Even when you watch a film, he's not he's not particularly progressive in the film. Just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. He has to he has to still be James Bond. But again, to to the Daily Mail, that was the super woke version of him.
1: Dear, oh dear. Um, who is your favourite Bond? And I'm going to say Timothy Dalton is mine controversially and partly because it annoys people, but genuinely I do think he's a good actor and he's making serious movies. Yeah. A lot of There's a lot to say for that.
2: Yeah, d- absolutely. And it's a very common um, choice in Bond fandom, Timothy Dalton. Uh, and they, they admire the way he sort of moved the character much closer to Ian Fleming's vision of it. But Sean Connery, Roger Moore, they both knew that the character needed humour. They both knew that he needed to move it uh, away from that. I think Daniel Craig might be my favourite at the, at the moment. Not saying that, you know, you can't criticise and find flaws in his his string of films, but um, I, th- I think a lot of people go for Connery, but I, the, the fact that he does force himself on women who clearly do not consent in two of his films is being talked about now in a way that, you know, we'd just grow up and those films would be on TV on bank holidays and no one would say a thing and it would just be seen normal. And because he was so handsome and charming and he was Sean Connery, for God's sake, you know, uh, people just seem to accept it. But now people, uh, are, the director of the last film, for instance, has, has talked about it in, in press conference. Now people are starting to go, yeah, that's rape. Yeah, that's, that's rape.
1: Well, and Connery himself was in favour of domestic violence.
2: He um, stuck to that position for many decades. I think it was only, was it 2007 that he finally uh, recanted and and said that violence against women was not acceptable. Um, That was a position, you know, he was very different to his earlier stances in earlier interviews over the preceding decades on that subject.
1: Your favourite Beatle, I think it's fairly clear from the book, is Paul. Tell us why that is.
2: Um, I, that's, that's interesting. I don't think I have a favorite Beatle. For me, it's the, it's the combination of the four. There's a strange alchemy happens when the four of them working together. And it's bigger than any of them as an individual. And that's what I'm very much drawn to there. But I definitely think, um, Paul McCartney's time has come round. I think he makes sense now in a way that he didn't in the seventies and the eighties. And in the, um, You know, when I was growing up, um, he was such a mocked figure uh, and critically sort of uh, he was a joke. You know, it was wacky maca, thumbs aloft. And his his attitude, his first solo album, he said, was about love, home, family. And people just thought that was embarrassing at that time. You know, that's not what they wanted from their their rock stars. They wanted sort of, you know, golden gods. They didn't want, you know, family. My God. But he stuck to those guns and kept that strange cloak of sort of faux orderingness around him. So now in the 21st century, people respect that they, his, his, his attitudes really chime, particularly with generation Z um, and their values. Uh, So suddenly he's shot up so much in people's estimation and things like the get back film was a, big part of that because the story was that he was just like you know he was the dad you know he he was the he was the hectoring sort of you know annoying do your work lads boss he was the boss figure and having seen get back I think people are much more on his side you know he's trying to get something to go obviously but he's also quite sort of emotionally sensitive to how the others are and, and things like that so yeah it's definitely um Paul McCartney's day I think at the moment
1: The McCartney and Lennon partnership is, of course, one of the greatest creative collaborations of all time. Mm. And you see it through the lens of genuine love.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. And and again, that's another thing that's been changing. Uh, And again, in that 70s, the 80s, that sort of period, people writing about the Beatles, male music journalists writing about the Beatles, did so through the lens of competition. And the question was like, well, who was the best? Was it Paul? Was it John? And the consensus was that John was the best. And that was how they tried to understand the Beatles um, back then. But now I think we realise that uh, it's the relationships between the four. That's where the real story is. That's where the real sort of magic lies. You learn far more from seeing the whole thing as a love story than you do some, you know, arguments about, you know, which which of these two men is is best. And, um it's sort of it's it's sort of unleashed an awful uh, an awful lot of really interesting insights into into their music into their collaboration into, into their story and their story has just got richer the more we know about it the more we we look at it the more we study it i do think it is the most studied event in history i think it happened just as mass media began and they became the most famous people in the entire world. And for that 10 years, they're um, active. Every camera, every tape recorder, every every notepad was sort of pointed at them Uh, day in, day out. They were the most recorded event. That's to the extent that people are still, still studying it and still finding, you know, new insights into it. It doesn't get dull, the people's story. It's very odd. Any other band, you think, well, I, I've got it now. I, I've got what they've got to offer me now. I got the story. I know the characters. I, you know, and you start to lose interest. But the more you know about the Beatles, the the, the the better it becomes. It's it's odd. It's kind of like they're infinite. They're this infinite event.
1: What went wrong in the Lennon McCartney relationship? In your understanding of it,
2: you know, as I, as I was saying earlier, when I was talking about the relationship between the four, that was the sort of the early days. They really were this gestalt entity they were um you know people used to talk of them as the the four-headed monster i think that was that was mick jagger's phrase and uh, they hung out together and they'd finish each other's sentences and they were at the center of this you know extraordinary storm of global Beatles mania and they were sort of crammed together like a diamond they were sort of under such pressures that they, they had each other uh and they fitted perfectly but they grew They they, they grew as men they grew up, they matured, and so they became different. So they didn't quite fit together in exactly the same way. And there were a couple of cracks in there um, from the very start. One was that George was looked down upon a little, especially by Paul. And the other was, you know, John and Paul were very, very different um, emotionally, uh, to the extent to which they put their you know, their heart on their sleeves. It, they, 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 do, they do differ quite a lot. And... Um, I kind of think John needed more from Paul than, you know, there's a little bit of reserve in McCartney, just just a little bit of reserve that that, uh, Lennon couldn't quite crack. And um, it wasn't enough for him. And, you know, Yoko came along and the choice was sort of made. So, yeah, they, 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 they fitted together perfectly at the start, but then they grew and they changed. And, you know, that's the whole thing with love. That's why you know, it's a, a story of love. You know, love, di- death doesn't die. It's love that dies. But the fact that it existed, that's what matters. You know, the fact that it existed, that's enough with
1: love. Insofar as you can attribute the breakup of the Beatles to a single individual, you go for John.
2: Well, John did leave. The, he was the one who split up the Beatles and left them. If I had to blame a single individual, I sp- I'd probably go for Alan Klein and his decision because Alan Klein was a, a big uh, manager, rock and roll manager. He handled the Rolling Stones and other people, and his ambition was to get the Beatles. And his approach to doing that was very much divide and conquer. It was like, if I can get John, then I'll have the Beatles, you know. Um, and so it was all out for getting John and supporting Yoko's part of that. And he knew that George and Ringo would come to him. But Paul wasn't having it. And it was just at that time where they just needed to... Cracks were, were appearing in their relationship. And if they'd had spent time together and learned to communicate properly, it didn't have to break. It could have continued. It could have sort of gone on. But the the business problems of, of John wanting to go with Alan Klein, who was seen even then as a bit of a crook and a bit of a criminal, and Paul not wanting that. It was just that added layer that... Um, I do think without that, they...
0: apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
1: john was as damaged as fleming in many ways and both he and fleming treated women appallingly throughout their lives can you speak a little to that
2: yeah I, uh, this is certainly true um the difference being i think that john came to recognize this part of his, uh, himself and try and change Um, Now, it's not to say that uh, he was completely successful in this, certainly in the 1970s when he'd had a drink, he was not good to be around. But the fact that he was aware that he came from quite a a violent culture, he sort of came came from a culture where, you know, men were men. And um, it was was that post-war thing of how we're sort of supposed to act. Uh, And he did slap uh, Cynthia, his first wife, before they got married which is often raised, you know, in, in the story of John Lennon, that that sort of violence against women and that thing. And you can find it in songs like um, Run for Your Life, you know, which don't which which it can make you wince a bit these these sort of days. But the the whole thing with John is he's basically the wounded uh, healer archetype. You know, he is damaged, but he's trying to get better, which is when there's an unideal situation. That's all we can hope for, is to aim to get better, to start to get better, to try and sort of move on. So I think that sense of John as this damaged person who's brave enough to recognise the dark side of himself uh, and strong enough to at least try to sort of move away from the way he he was uh, raised or brought up or or whatever is very important. Uh, You don't get that with Fleming, although... Obviously he, wasn't, he was sort of much older and, and um, less likely to change, certainly by the time he came into fame and, and the Bond thing became such a global success. The Bond films have
1: largely replicated Fleming's toxic behaviour towards women. No matter how much the producers seem to attempt to or say they're attempting to imbue the female characters with agency, they always manage to fall short
2: yeah and it 's and you know the the amount of times uh when they 'll announce oh this isn 't like an like the old, old bond girls you know this this new bond girl she 's not like the old ones, as if it wasn't them who' just created all the the old bond girls but the the amount of actresses who 've done that speech i 'm not a normal bond girl very clearly shows you that something's up uh, and there's been many um attempts to change the the female characters maybe by giving them more agency you know, making them stronger in, in certain ways. But it just boils down to the problem isn't the women, you know. The problem is Bond. The problem is that baked into the character of Bond is this notion that after he sleeps with women, they die. And it's there in the very first novel, Casino Royale. And it then it just runs through the films uh, again and again and again, which makes the final film really interesting.
1: Well, let's just put a note in the podcast. Anyone who hasn't seen No Time to Die... You might want to skip ahead a few yeah. minutes.
2: That, that makes it really fascinating because the, the notion that after Bond touches women, they die becomes part of the plot. It, it, it's expressed on the level of narrative. It's this complicated um, oh story. There's, a, there's, a nano, there's nanobots that are programmed to people's DNAs. And it's, it's a big elaborate sort of uh, excuse, which basically says if Bond touches the woman he loves, she will die. And this is what causes Bond to sacrifice himself, because he's recognised the problem on the only level that he can, which is the level of story. It's finally been expressed on the level of story. So it will be very interesting to see where they go now, now that this has finally been addressed. It was was noticeable in the Daniel Craig uh, uh, films that uh, every woman he slept with died up until Strawberry Fields, which was a a very much a Beatles film-themed Bond girl, uh, which is played by Gemma Arterton. And she had written this this um, short story about her character, about how she thought her character should be. It was like an alternative reality where the woman behaved how Gemma Arterton thought she should of them. And hence she survives and hence she lives to fight another day. Uh, and after Gemma Arterton, it sort of stopped, All of the notion that he sleeps with women and they die it all just fell away and, and it doesn't seem to be some it seems to be something they have become aware of and they're not sort of you know they're not going to do anymore so once bond reappears it will be fascinating to to see how that aspect of him is is addressed he might
1: finally be non
2: toxic he i think he will i think when he reappears i think cause the whole point of bond is is the, the 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 dream men have of how they should be um, and I think men now, you know, when Bond comes back, he'll be a millennial. He'll be in his, in his early 30s. The, obviously, the, you know, the, the sexual world is more complicated and uh, harder to navigate. But the fantasy is to be able to navigate it, to be able to handle it all effortlessly, to sort of do the right thing and know what the right thing to do is. That's who we want to be. We don't want to go back to how it was in Ian Fleming's day. You know, So I, it will be fascinating to see where this character goes and, and how they address things like this. You uncovered in your research that
1: Gen Z don't love Bond and mm-hmm. they haven't been sort of onboarded to Bond through their childhoods in the same way as previous generations because they don't grow up in a one-screen house watching Bond films with their parents mm-hmm. on bank holiday or what have you. And do you think that poses a
2: serious threat to his future? Yeah, I, I mean, it, obviously it seems to. I mean, if you go to say something like Comic Con, no one is cosplaying as Bond, you know, no one is dressing up as Bond. Uh, in many ways, he is everything they are against, you know, imperialistic, misogynistic, white male, establishment figure, uh, death, you know. So it's very tempting to think, oh, I think this could be the end of Bond. But people have been saying, this is going to be the end of Bond. From about nineteen sixty-seven, every film that's come out since uh, you only live twice, there's been reviews going, "Yes, yeah, that's enough, lads. It's, it's that's it's time." You know, not, Connery
1: not, had those yeah. views himself.
2: Yeah, you get them. You had them all through the seventies. You had them to the eighties, through the nineties, through, through the 2000s, to the up to the modern film. There's always these, and yet it just goes on, and yet it just goes on. There is something of tradition about it. There is something of the fact that death does not die about it, that that normal rules don't seem to apply. So I would be very um hesitant to predict the demise of the character as a as a big franchise, even fully acknowledging the extent to which uh, he it has lo- lost the you know the teenage audience and the young audience. Uh, and it will be difficult because whoever they go with next, assuming they're going with someone in their early thirties. You know, as I say, this is a millennial Bond. This is someone who's grown up with dating apps and hookup apps and something like that, and this is very sort of casual and uninteresting, uh, uh, the, and it's so different to Ian Fleming's notion that to, for a man to be a bit of a slut was classy, which is, which is sort of baked into it. Uh, and a modern Bond is kind of going to be like Harry Styles, someone like that, and for older Bond fans, I don't think they're going to like that. I think they're going to real struggle with a sort of Harry Styles type bond. So the producers have this dilemma of if they keep existing old Bond fans happy it will just die off and dwindle in due course. If they they, they do need to bring that next generation. in. It happened in the 90s you know with the Goldeneye uh, 007 video game and the whole sort of Pierce Brosnan relaunch around Britpop and and uh, that sort of spirit of um, Cool Britannia and things like that, it brought a whole new generation on board. So it can happen, but it'd be very, you know, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy to do it again in the current climate, yeah.
1: To finish up, since this is the How-To Academy and we like the occasional practical insight, what Mm. can we learn from the Beatles and from Bond about the nature of creativity and art more generally? Putting aside the issue that no one can ever replicate the beatles or bond
2: well from the beatles you um you learn the the power of change basically whatever they did they then did something else they never repeated themselves they were sort of refused to repeat themselves uh, it was the competition between john and paul always trying to outdo each other always trying to come up with something something better it's very different to modern bands who are sort of advised to have a recognizable style that's you know you do something that people like, so you then keep doing it for another five albums. Uh, Beatles are not like that in any way, shape or form. And um, the way their creativity snowballed when they allowed themselves that freedom, I think, is a very important lesson and, and something well worth looking at. Bond, in contrast, teaches us the power of tradition, power of just keep going on just maintaining just doing it and doing it and, do, and not giving up and never giving up and keep going and keep going that has a magic to it that has a power um and that's that's worth learning as well yeah i think those are the two main lessons
1: john thank you so much for returning to the how to academy podcast love and let die is out now from Orchid bookshops
2: lovely to talk to you thanks Baz. This
1: episode starred John Higgs and was produced and presented by me. The editor is John Doughty, and the series is co-produced by me and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong. If you loved it, review us and share it with your friends. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.